Some of the most uh, important lessons we often learn from sources that we did not expect to be learning from at all. And one of those, biblically, is found in Daniel chapter 4. You probably know the story. It is the story of Nebuchadnezzar, a global leader in those days, global, (laughs) um, and a powerful, powerful man who experiences what many powerful men experience. I could think of at least one such powerful man today who reminds me in many, many ways, many ways of Nebuchadnezzar. He is looking at his domain. He is looking at what he convinces himself he has built by his wisdom and his might and his power. Um, obviously, he's not the one that did it, but he pe- people can convince themselves self-deception is a, is a reality. And when you have a lot of people around you bowing and scraping to you and telling you how great you are, self-deception can become a, a, daily, a daily thing. So Nebuchadnezzar is looking at his realm and he starts talking about how he has done all these things and it's all focused upon him. And you remember the story, God decides, not as if God decided right then, oh, I never, I never saw this coming, let's, uh, let's respond to this. God punishes Nebuchadnezzar by taking away from him the very things that should be the first means by which a person recognizes their creatureliness. Because he's ignored the testimony of his reason. Any reasonable person would recognize how frail our life is, how dependent we were as children and young people upon others, how dependent we are even at this point in time upon our food and even the most powerful man in the world. I was, I was at uh, DFW uh, a few weeks ago, not going to be doing that much in the future. Um, but I was there stuck there for hours on end and it was late in the evening and it was during another uh, interminable flight delay. And all of a sudden there's this, I see this movement out of the corner of my eye and this crash. And I thought somebody in one of the restaurants had like lost a cart or something down some stairs or something. But as I was walking by later, the maintenance guys are there and I asked them what happened. And part of the roof fell in a big old section, not old, but a big section of roofing because there was a lot of rain and wind and everything else. I don't know if that had to do with it or it just happened to happen, but this big old thing comes crashing down to the floor. And it, I was in one of the, I was in the D and if you know the D terminal at DFW, the roof is way up there. It's multiple stories. There's uh, it's probably three, three stories taller. So what if you're walking by the most powerful person in the world can't avoid everything. We're all, mortal. And we should know that. And Nebuchadnezzar should have known that. But we're also capable of self-delusion and self-deception. 
And so God takes away from him that which he has been ignoring. And he becomes like the beasts, and he can no longer groom himself, and his hair grows out, and he, he, he is removed from the human realm for a period of time. But then, at the end of that period of time, he lifts up his eyes toward heaven, and his reason returned to him, and it says, And I blessed the Most High and praised and honored him who lives forever. Now, before, when he had his quote-unquote reason, he had been an idolater. Somehow, some way, we there's so many questions that could be asked, and the vast majority of skeptical or unbelieving biblical scholarship will dismiss this story. It's it's a pious fraud. It never happened. Uh, you don't have any evidence of this outside of Daniel, which, of course, yeah, I, like I'm very sure that his contemporaries are going to be recording this. Um, but the idea being... Well, look, uh, this man, what he says, couldn't have happened because we're naturalists, we're materialists. There's, there can't be anything supernatural going on. But let's say God wanted to actually humble a world leader. So he takes his reason from him. And then in the process of that time period when he is reduced to this status, reveals himself to Nebuchadnezzar. Now that he is not distracted by all of the self-deceptive elements of property and possession, having people following him around and telling him how great he is and everything else. And so I blessed the Most High and praised and honored him who lives forever. So all of a sudden, he knows that there is one who lives forever, and it's not him. That's part of the returning of his reason to him, is that it's not him. For his dominion is an everlasting dominion, not mine. I thought mine was. I was an idiot. I was self-deceived. My reason has returned, and so I've turned my eyes away from my stuff and the stuff of this world toward heaven. That's what the reasonable person does. The reasonable person recognizes the brevity of one's life, one's dependence upon God. A reasonable person recognizes his own mortality and the massive limitation of the amount of knowledge that anyone can have. You know, I... I've talked about how many times, many times I've talked about Jason Lyle, smartest guy I've ever met. Really is. I mean, just the highest IQ genius level guy um, around. But the nice thing is, Jason's a fellow heir of grace, and so Jason will tell you what I know of, of the created universe is minuscule. It's, it's tiny. I, I only know, I can only know what we know now and what we know now, we've forgotten some of the stuff we used to know, and we certainly know a lot more than we have in the past in some areas, And but I still only know a portion of that, and that's nothing in comparison to what God knows. That's what the reasonable person does. The reasonable person recognizes 
human limitation, the brevity of our life, even if you have a voracious, unending desire to learn, that knowledge dies with you unless you pass it on to others. And that knowledge remains extremely partial and limited in comparison to what God knows. So Nebuchadnezzar, his dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom endures from generation to generation, and I don't. I don't. This is the lesson that he has learned. The brevity of life, the limitedness of mankind, the creatureliness. Remember, what was he reduced to? Like a beast in the field. Like a beast in the field. But the beast in the field had learned what the beast in the field should know. And what Nebuchadnezzar didn't know when he was strutting about in his fine clothes up on his palace wall. He had learned it's God's kingdom that endures forever. And therefore he says, and this is totally different than what the religions that he would have been raised in would say. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing. All the inhabitants. See, he would have been raised in in religious beliefs that would have taught him that the rich and the powerful, the noble, the royal, they aren't counted as nothing. They're next to the gods. But now he knows all the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing. This is a phrase found elsewhere in Scripture. Remember in Isaiah, all of the inhabitants, like sand on the, on the scale, just, you know, just little grains of sand, you know. They, they, can't, they can't accomplish anything in and of themselves. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing, but, but, he does according to his will in the host of heaven. Now, there's a lot of folks. I have a quote somewhere in uh, God's Sovereign Grace from Charles Hatton Spurgeon. That's not much of a trick. Uh, About every book published these days has a quote somewhere from Charles Hatton Spurgeon. But this particular quotation is about how mankind is most happy to have God busily active in heaven, dispensing gifts to men and taking care of natural wonders and the weather and things like this. But men gnash their teeth when you proclaim the idea that God is sovereign in the affairs of men. So it's one thing, oh, he, he does according to his will in the host of heaven, sure, yeah, up there in the heavenly realm, we'll let God be in charge up there. It's interesting, I, I sort of go, well, you know, if you're so all-fired concerned about mankind's autonomous will, why aren't you concerned about the will of heavenly creatures, for example? If it is dehumanizing for us to be the creatures of God under his sovereign decree, why isn't it uh, wrong that the heavenly creatures who have so much power and live so much longer 
shouldn't that even be a, a greater concern? But we don't think about things like that. So it's one thing. He does according to his will in the host of heaven. So even those mighty creatures, their wills cannot thwart God's intentions. He does according to his will in the host of heaven. And among the inhabitants of earth. There's what Nebuchadnezzar had learned. Nebuchadnezzar had learned what many people today simply refuse to confess. That God's sovereignty in heaven is just as real upon earth. He does according to his will among the inhabitants of the earth. Well, that's just a sort of a, a general thing. That's, that's, not, that's not specific. That's not what Nebuchadnezzar said. He says, no one can ward off his hand. No one can ward off his hand. I saw a video just before the program started. Uh, somebody had posted it to a, a Twitter. Uh, Spanish police were arresting a woman for not wearing a mask. And so the crowd around them ripped off their masks and rescued the woman and grabbed her and pulled her back from the cops. And there are only four cops and there's probably 30 people. And once they started chanting, um, the cops are like, okay, I think we're going to, we're going to back off her. That's called warding off someone's hand. They put hands on her to arrest her for not wearing a mask. They warded off their hands, the hands of the police. That's what they did. And Nebuchadnezzar says, no one can ward off his hand. Now, what that means is God is active amongst the inhabitants of the earth. His hand is stretched forth in power, and no one can slap it away. So this isn't just some benevolent general, he keeps the creation running sovereignty. He is sovereign amongst the inhabitants of the earth. No one can ward off his hand or say to him, what have you done? What have you done? But is that not the very essence of mankind's constant response to God's decree? What have you done? Now think about the foolishness, and it is foolishness. Think about the foolishness that must fill the heart of an individual to say to God, what have you done? You say, no, we're, we're creating God's image. It's a good thing for us to do that. Now, now think for a moment. What lies at the heart of this? What lies at the heart of someone saying to God, you need to give an answer to me for what you have done in my experience, or just generally in all of history. Here's a man who has been reduced to the status of a beast. He's had his reason removed from him. And in the process, when his reason returns, he has seen and come to understand who he is as a mere creature. 
and that he has no right and no basis for daring to try to put God in the dock, to use the English phraseology, to bring God before the court and demand an answer from him. You think maybe Paul might have had this story somewhat in the back of his mind in Romans 9? Yeah, I think he did. I think he did. Who can say to him, what have you done? The rhetorical question is intended to remind us that no one can say that. You and I know people who do it every single day, but the point is it shows foolishness on their part to do so. Because if you know the one true God, before whom all the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing, the one true God who's the maker and sustainer of all things, then you know he has a purpose. He has a reason for what he does. And he doesn't have to reveal that purpose or reason, but very often he does. What he has revealed is his actions will be in accordance with his own nature, with his own goodness. Not some external stuff, rules that he has to somehow uh, obey that come from outside of him, but he is perfectly self-consistent because he is all good. But we as his creatures are never in a position in this life to have enough information to be able to bring judgment against him. No matter how dark and dreary things may look, we have the promise that God's working all things according to the counsel of his will. And so here is a pagan, an idolater, and God has dealings with him. And when he comes to his reason, he's a Calvinist. How did that happen? <laughs> now, this, now, we aren't told if there's a time lapse between the return of his reason and when he said these things. But I sort of like to have the idea that probably for political reasons, the insiders have kept his condition quiet so they can have power and authority and maintain stability uh, economically, politically, militarily, et cetera, et cetera. So they've got him in a particular place where he can do his grazing and everything else, and his fingernails have grown out, and his hair is... Can you imagine what you would look like after... We were all talking about what we look like after a couple of months of COVID lockdown. I mean, can you imagine Nancy Pelosi, okay? I mean, we know she's been sneaking in to the, you know, to the salons, but what if, what if she had actually followed her own rules? What would she look like by now? So extend that period of time out a good bit, and old Nebby Baby is looking, he, he's scary looking, okay? You know, big old claw type thing. Hair hasn't been combed in forever. It's just grown out in the, a beard that would, that would make any of the guys at Apologia just look like, oh, wow, okay? So we're talking mane here, you know? And can, so you're the first, you're the first, palace servant 
that sees him coming through the door, standing on his own two feet. And you think, oh, great, he got out of his pen. But actually, he starts speaking. Was this the first thing he said? We aren't, we aren't told. But can you imagine the impact it would have had if he looked like this when he said these things? We're not told. Don't know. I like to think about things like this. I like to go, I wonder, you know, did he, what was it, what was it like when he first comes to, in essence, and stands up and smells himself and realizes what has happened? And did he know the passage of time? Did he know how much time had passed? And what, what was the response of the people who've been enjoying their super duper power? for a while um don't know but did he wait until he was all cleaned up and in his right mind and and showered (laughs) i guess it wouldn't be showered bathed um back in his royal clothes um eating human food got a good pedicure a manicure uh Boy, that that hair that haircut must have been rough. Um, you know, the whole nine yards, and then does he come in before his nobles? And does he say to them these words? I don't know. We're not told. All we are told is that when you re- when you are a reasonable human being, you will believe that God is not like you and me. That God's completely other. That God has a purpose. That God is sovereign. You will recognize your creatureliness when you are a truly reasonable human being. Now, I say all this because there's so much in Scripture that speaks of God's sovereignty over human affairs. We have Psalm 115.3 and 135.6 and these 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 basic statements of God does what he will in heaven and upon earth. This is, this is the God that we worship. And then that becomes the extended discussion and foundation of, of the trial of the false gods in Isaiah 40 through 48. And, and it underlies the whole message of the prophets and it, and it comes into the new Testament as well. And it's foundational to what we are to understand about God and his nature and his, therefore everything he does, including his, Self-glorification in the gospel, in and through Jesus Christ, is this fundamental reality of his sovereignty. Um, Last night, I saw a... I I did not listen to all of it, didn't have time to listen to all of it, but there was... I had a horrible day yesterday. Um, I tried to do something mechanical, and oh, that just always really not good. I was trying to, I got some things repaired, but anyway, um, you never, ever, ever have the tools you actually need to do. And be very, very afraid of anything that says you do not need tools to do this. (laughs) There will be a very special tool that you will need to actually accomplish this. Um, And this had to do with my bike. And um, that tool, thankfully, was available from Amazon overnight. (laughs) So hopefully I can I can finish stuff up um, 
uh, this evening sometime. But uh, the wife will appreciate having the living room back from all the stuff that's spread out all over the place. But anyways, in the midst of all that, while I was getting all the oil and stuff off of my hands uh, repeatedly because I was working with chains, um, I saw this video uh, that Chris Date had done. Now, I didn't know this until last night, but Chris Date now works for the same seminary that Leighton Flowers teaches for. And so I hadn't seen that. I hadn't made that connection. Um, but here is a video that Chris Date put out where he went through video after video after video after video of Leighton Flowers with Leighton using his constant, regular argument on the basis of the term arbitrary. God arbitrarily does this. God arbitrarily does that in Calvinism. And that what he means by arbitrarily is on a whim, without a reason, without a purpose, in a completely unconstrained manner. Now, I learned from watching this first, because as soon as I saw the tweet and I started watching this, I was going, if I ever did this, it would take me weeks. I mean, you're talking two, three hour videos and you're pulling out specific sections that have one particular. How do you do this? And he said, well, I, I had volunteers that helped me. And the transcript feature on YouTube. And I'm like, the transcript feature on YouTube? And so I clicked on it and, oh, look at that. And I, I actually played around a little bit. You can just select it and copy it. And then you can do searches on it and stuff like that. Now, I don't know how accurate it is. I, I can't imagine that the lower the sound quality goes that it would be overly accurate, but wow. Uh, still it was extremely impressive because he just went on for quite some time. And so here's this date and man, an easy half of the videos, easy half of the videos are about me. <laughs> it's just, I don't think Leighton really re recognizes just how imbalanced he is. I mean, there, he only deals with one subject. It's just, he, like I said, um, evidently this is how you do evangelism in Texas for Texas Baptists is you respond to Calvinism. That's, that's called evangelism in Texas. Um, anyway, but he's just going through video after video after video just and here's at such and such a time index of beep, 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 and and it's just this constant repetitious thing on Dr. Flowers' part to talk about how in Calvinism God is arbitrary. But then when he uses other language, he defines that as doing things on a whim for no reason. You see. Now, it's understandable why this is. And in fact, by the way, that video went on to cite about 472 um, English dictionaries prior to the death of, prior to and contemporaneous to the death of Jonathan Edwards, just to make one point. It's like, 
Okay, we get that point. Yeah. Anyway, um, uh, it, it was fascinating to see the change in the meaning of the term arbitrary over time. Jonathan, When Jonathan Edwards talked about God's will as being arbitrary, he didn't mean what we mean today as a whimsical, flighty, no guiding principle type activity. He was talking about what the term really when we use is sovereignty, kingship, kingly rule, ability to act without reference to external uh, sources of authority or rules, right? Power in and of oneself. Anyway, I was thinking about because you just keep hearing Leighton Flowers repeating himself over and over in all these different contexts and going, this is this is exactly what you would expect from synergists. This is this is the synergistic urge. I am thankful for synergists who fight it, but then there are other synergists who are absolutely consumed by it. It is the synergistic urge. What what does synergism do? Synergism recognizes the necessity of the divine action but limits the power of the divine action to accomplish anything to what mankind will allow by mankind's input, whether it's a lot of input or just simply a faith input and everything in between. But this is the essence of being Nebuchadnezzar on the rooftop, not Nebuchadnezzar coming into the palace having his reason returned to him. This is the essence of having a fundamental fear of a God who is actually accomplishing his own purpose in everyone's lives, in all that takes place. There, there, is, a, there is a point of recognition where we come to realize that not only does the world not revolve around us, we're born thinking the world revolves around us. We cry and our parents show up. A few years later, we fall down, skin our knee, and we cry and our parents show up. And we, we learn to behave in such a way as to, to, get a, to get help, get assistance, get things, get attention. It's all about us. Maturity is supposed to be when we start realizing that it's not all about us. That's been lost in our society in general. But that's when that's what's supposed to be happening when you grow up anyways. And it's supposed to lead to the fundamental recognition of just how mortal we are, how brief our lifespan is. Which is why scripture says it's far better to spend a day in the house of mourning than the house of feasting. House of feasting, you're not thinking about the future. In house of mourning, you're faced with it. You're faced with who you are and who God is. So, the synergistic impulse is meant to keep us away from the God who is accomplishing his own will. And there comes a time, by grace, where we really realize that God is God and we are not God, and that God can do with us as he wills and as he pleases. As he pleases. He did not have to save us. He could have done with us what he did with Pharaoh. For his own glory. 
could have done that. And I just think there's a lot of people who are absolutely terrified to trust the God who reveals himself in Scripture. That's why when you see people going off to the left, what's one of the first things they do? What's one of the, what's one of the first and almost universal things that people do? They dismiss the Old Testament Scriptures as having any true validity, historical validity. Oh, he didn't do any of those things. Why? Because the God of the Old Testament is so amazingly sovereign, as is the God of the New Testament. But when you take the Old Testament story away, then you can massage the the New Testament to make it fit a little bit better, in essence. So, as I listened to Dr. Flowers over and over again talking about arbitrary, arbitrary, I've said many, many times, the true God of Scripture cannot be arbitrary. In, in the modern sense, in the modern developed sense of that term, the way that, that Leighton's using it, God doesn't do anything on a whim. He has a decree. And it's interesting, the same terminology that's used, for example, in Isaiah 40, 48, comes into the New Testament, Ephesians chapter 1, where everything God does is according to the kind intention of his will, his good desire. When God acts, it's based upon his ultimate power and purpose and goodness. Elect according to the kind intention of his will. That is, the, that is the greatest answer that could ever be given. To, to want something other than that. To say that we should be elect based upon our behavior and our attitudes, which is exactly what provisionism says. Why does God give, why does God the Father give anybody the Son? Because they've already believed in God. Because they've already obeyed God. Because they've already learned from God. It's all man's prior actions. Because your choice meets. The choice meets are given to the Son. And, and no matter how often you point that out, unless given ears to hear, it's, it's going to be ignored. It's going to be ignored. But there can be no diminishment of the reality that I can certainly remember when it first truly struck me, when I was first really faced with the fact that I had always used my traditions to tame the God of Scripture. To make him much less than he really is. Much less threatening. Much less fearful. I remember that. I, I don't want to forget that. That's a, that's a gift of God's grace. But it's right there in front of us. Any scripture we look at, we're going to see it. It's right there. Well, I went a lot longer than I thought I was going to go to there. Um, but I hope that is, um, that is useful to you. Uh, shifting gears real quick here. Please uh, pray for uh, Pastor Josh Williamson. Um, New Quay Baptist Church in Cornwall in the UK. He used to be down in uh, Australia. Um, was one of the guys that had me down there at one point. Um, <laughs> police tell, this is, uh, uh, from christianconcern.com. Police tell pastor not to offend gay pride as mob threatens to burn down his church. 
This is this is the United Kingdom. This is the the the, the England of the Westminster Assembly and Spurgeon, and you just start going down the line. When when the light goes out, it gets dark indeed. And so please tell pastor not to offend gay pride as mob threatened to burn down his church. And so uh, Josh had, well, on August 13, 2020, Pastor Williamson responded to an article on a local news outlet's Facebook page, which reported that this year's Cornwall Pride would be canceled. Now, if you've ever watched Pride parades and you're a Christian, you're thankful that that kind of public display of rebellion against God is canceled, even if it's canceled for a bad reason, the COVID panic. He simply posted wonderful news. Wonderful news. Asked by an online user why the news was wonderful, he responds saying, because I don't think sin should be celebrated. Answering further questions on his views, he quoted from the book of John, James, and 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 9-11. through 11. Oh, we all know what that says. On his personal Facebook page, Pastor Williamson then shared the news article and commented, Hallelujah, we prayed at our prayer meeting on Tuesday night that this event would be canceled. We also prayed that the Lord would save the organizers. One prayer answered, now we wait for the second prayer to be answered. Well, organizers of Cornwall, Cornwall Pride searched his personal page, took a screenshot of the post, and then tagged New Quay Baptist Church and posted along with negative comments made by other users about gay pride. By blocking out the names of each comment and mentioning New Quay Baptist Church, it appeared they had all been made by Pastor Williamson. Don't worry about anyone being honest on that side. Online threats Online threats followed against the pastor's wife, and his head was superimposed onto an image of homosexual pornography, which was then shared online. Yes, that's people that we're dealing with, then this should sound familiar. Cornwall Pride then called on as many supporters as possible to report the pastor to the police for hate speech and hate crime. LGBT sympathizers threatened that they would protest at his Sunday services, would seek to have the church's charity status revoked, and have Pastor Williamson deported to his native Australia. Following these these threats, Pastor Williamson was invited to a meeting by a transgender member of the community. Pastor Williamson accepted the invitation in effort to share his actual beliefs and met for an hour with two members of Cornwall Pride to discuss matters at the meeting. Pastor Williamson reiterated his stance and Christian beliefs and welcomed members of the LGBT community to attend his church. Hoping to help them understand his position and beliefs, Pastor Williamson ended the meeting by sharing a leaflet with permission on what the Bible says about homosexuality. Images of the leaflet were then shared throughout the LGBT community, creating a perception that Pastor Williamson was distributing them widely, which he was not. Which further, With further calls for police to investigate Pastor Williamson for a hate crime, a post in an LGBT group called for New Quay Baptist Church, which often houses families, to be burnt down. Another user agreed, responding, let's burn a church, let's burn a church. Well, uh, Pray for Josh Williamson and the work there in New Quay. Uh, Josh had talked to me about coming down there at some point, and this was back when I was going to London so often that, uh, you know, I was going to have to start paying taxes eventually. Um, that's probably not probable in the future. But anyway, I pray for their ability to uh, continue to testify to the truth, the safety of their facilities, of course, because... These people will do this type of thing. Um, 
And it's just a, a modern example of what we're up against in a society that is in love with its own rebellion and sin. In love with its own rebellion and sin. Speaking of being in love with rebellion and sin, um, what was this one? Oh, oh okay, yeah. Um, got a couple rebellious, sinful folks here. Um, this uh, video uh, popped up on my feed. I was tagged with it. And, well, I get the feeling just by looks and the rainbow bracelet she's wearing. Uh, I The super liberal Lutherans look like this. So the, uh, that's, that's sort of my guess, uh, is it's probably a ultra-liberal Lutheran female minister person. Um, but how would you respond to this? Here's, uh, here's, well, I'll just play it for you. Teach them to carry out everything I have commanded you. And know that I am with you always, even unto the end of the world. Here ends the reading, not according to the anonymous gospel story teller, which we call Matthew. No, no. You can't get out of first year New Testament classes and not learn that the vast majority of New Testament scholars agree that this particular ending of this anonymous gospel was added much later. And the reality is that Jesus, in all likelihood, never actually said these words. Let me be clear. The so-called Great Commission was added to the gospel by the Christian community sometime around the year 325 to bring this gospel into line with the brand spanking new creed, which the church had just written, which we know as the Nicene Creed. Now, whether or not you agree with the preponderance of evidence unearthed by New Testament scholars about the very real possibility that Jesus never actually issued the Great Commission, you still must begin to understand that these words, whether Jesus said them or not, these words became the justification for the doctrine of discovery. So I'm thinking that that, uh, that uh, iPhone watch thing, iWatch or whatever they call it she's wearing, is probably about to explode from the amount of false information that she just spewed out there. I don't know. Um Oh, 325 is everything. Yeah, people people wonder why when I teach church history, I make sure everybody knows when the Council of Nicaea was. Well, that, that's that's one of the reasons right there. Uh, the the poor little flowers on the right should probably wilt and, and everything else. Um, so I actually had a little discussion because uh, Peter Gurry saw that and he said, she must be talking about Mark. She must just confuse Mark and Matthew because she must be talking about the long running of Mark. No, I don't think so. Um, the, 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 you know, quote unquote form criticism, uh, quote unquote higher scholarship. Um, now I don't know. If, I don't even know of any of those people that are radical enough to say that the actual ending of the Gospel of Matthew did not take the form that has it today until the fourth century. That's a silly. We have uh, not only do you have manuscripts, Sinaiticus and Vaticanus. Now we don't have papyri endings and beginnings of books. Uh, are frequently not found in our papyri just simply because of how books are transmitted. 
last first and last pages are the first ones to get lost. Um, so if you look at P66 in the Gospel of John, the last portions are extremely fragmentary and some stuff's missing like John 2028. And uh, you have the page, but it's badly damaged. Um, so that that's not unusual. But we, we have the great 4th century manuscripts around that time period, which evidently just must have magically gotten it uh, right in time for printing, I guess. But clearly, these words were known from the beginning. They're quoted by numerous sources in the time period prior to uh, 325. We have no manuscript evidence whatsoever to substantiate this type of stuff. So when these people talk about evidence that's been unearthed, what they're talking about is sort of like when Shabir Ali, and I think today's Shabir Ali's birthday, happy birthday, Shabir. Um, I think it's like when Shabir Ali, and we debated um, the identity of Muhammad as the comforter, he utilized ultra-leftist Christian sources that theorize about various forms of the Gospel of John and versions of the Gospel of John that may have contained different portions of John 14 and 16. Because if you, if you actually read John 14, 15, 16 together, it's very plain that Muhammad is not being referred to there. So he had to try to break that up. Now, we have no manuscripts to substantiate any of that, but the idea is, you know, at places like Union Theological Seminary, this is unearthing evidence, which means the wild fancies of people who have absolutely no manuscript evidence to back up anything they're saying and are ignoring the manuscript evidence that's already in existence. And that's what you've got. But this is the kind of thing, that, you know, imagine if this is all you ever heard. Imagine if if this was all you ever heard, this was all you were ever raised with, um, how weird it would be to hear someone like me. Um, you know, uh, you'd, you'd, you'd go, that guy can't be right. That guy can't be right. Well, there you go. Um, that's next one I need to warn you about. Um, some of you have seen it, some of you haven't. Um, but you need to know what your tax dollars are paying for these days. Um, this is uh, what's going on in our society. In um, If you had stayed at the company that you worked for, uh, Mr. Pierce, you would have, you would have had to, you would have, <laughs> you, you would have run into this. You would have run into this. My, my wife was, my wife was running into it before. Oh yeah, I know. I know. I, I know your, your Prescottonian blood would have. Yeah, I, I get it. Um, this is a woman that I've seen before. Um, Interestingly enough, she actually puts up here her uh, GoFundMe stuff. But um, I don't even know what to say to stuff like this. I, I don't I don't know what to say to anyone who would appear in public like this, to be perfectly honest with you. I don't know what to say to someone who can be this uh, blatantly, wildly racist. Um, and do it with a smile. I, but this is, this is the end of woke ideology. This is what critical race theory and intersectionality, 
which all of a sudden last week, no one knows what those things are anymore. Um, we've been talking about them for years, but no one knows what they are anymore. Uh, everything, uh, everything shifted. But can you? I, I I commented this morning when I posted it. I said, um, "Would I have sat in this room to be told the things this woman was saying?" Where she's saying that, that that white people are not born as humans, that they're all racists, that you're just born as a racist, and I'm here to teach you how to become a human because you're born below that level. Um, and I said yes for research purposes to know how to expose this kind of racist tripe that is being paid for. Um, and this is this is the kind of stuff that President Trump was saying, we shall not spend taxpayer money to do this anymore. <laughs> and people are like, ah, just freaking out. And they call this, they call, literally, they this is, this is anti-racist training. This is what it means to be an anti-racist. You're either a racist or an anti-racist. But to be an anti-racist is to believe that all whites are racists. That the the world has lost its ever-loving mind. Logic, reason, rationality out the window. Because you can't have debate, you can't have back and forth. It's all just one narrative. And believe me, uh, even though President Trump says no money to do this in the future, that all ends in January, one way or the other, depending on whether there's still a on what happens with all this stuff and mail-in voter fraud and everything else. Who knows? Anyway, um, but one way or the other, executive orders are only as good as long as the executive is still the executive. A little bit like like the old high priest, you know? (laughs) Limited time period. Um, And if uh, Kamala Harris is president, and I don't even, the other guy, he is so far gone, he is so much not there anymore, that I just simply refer to the future Harris presidency, if that's what was to happen. Uh, This stuff will be not only here, but this lady will be in kindergarten classes. This will be everywhere. Uh, that, that's just, that's just what it'll be. Oh, she'll be the secretary of education. That's, that's Rich's, Rich's prediction is she will be the secretary of education. So, uh, I'm warning you ahead of time. Um, visually, um, I don't even know what to say. And, uh, but yeah, so here's, well, uh, I'll just play it. All white people are racist. So <laughs> I put this up because I really want any white person in the room to know up front that this is what we're dealing with, that it's not going to be this coddling of white tears and what that looks like. We're not going to discuss, oh, maybe some of us have worked it out. No, you're always going to be racist, actually. So even when you're on your path to trying to figure out how to be a better human being, um, because I believe that white people are born into not being human, like that actually instead of people of color and black folks being dehumanized that actually everyone is dehumanized off rip within white supremacy that y'all are born into a life to not be human and that's what y'all are taught to do to be demons so in this particular way white people are all racist so i just want y'all to know that up front so that's ashley shackleford is her name ashley shackleford and so she 
I just cannot imagine what it would be like to be sitting there. And so we're going to start off. You're a racist. And that's where we're starting from. And it doesn't matter what you've done in your life. It doesn't matter what fills your heart. This is identity politics. This is intersectionality. This is critical race theory. This is Marxism. This is how you divide and destroy cultures. And we're paying for it. And it is the most racist stuff you're ever going to see. But there you go. Now, a couple things. Uh, This popped up uh, yesterday. This is great. This is wonderful. This is from our future blue-helmeted overlords. Notice they're using the blue-helmeted color there. Uh, they'll be marching through our streets for long. Um, and so the uh, the United Nations thing down there at the bottom says, this is the time to rebuild more equal, inclusive, and resilient societies. 31st August 2020, UN Secretary General Antonio Guterres. And uh, that is retweeted uh, with the comment, the COVID-19 pandemic is demonstrating what we all know. See, we all know this. This is, this is to be given. This is a, a given now. Millennia of patriarchy have resulted in a male-dominated world with a male-dominated culture, which damages everyone, women, men, girls, and boys. Now, my first thought was, wait a minute. Um, that's the gender binary. <laughs> Intersectionality destroys itself. It eats itself up because it's, it's, it's battery acid. It's, it's, it can't build anything. It can only destroy everything. And that's what it does. But here you have the patriarchy. Um, uh, and the COVID-19 pandemic is demonstrating what we all know, millennia of patriarchy result in a male-dominated world. What does the faux panic of the COVID-19 stuff have to do with any of this? It's all politics. It's all politics. It's all bringing about what's called the Great Reset. It's where you get rid of borders, you get rid of nations, you establish a global technocracy, based on Marxist principles, and you usher in the Marxist panacea. And you, you, everyone's, there's only one song on the radio constantly. It's John Lennon's Imagine. That's, that's all it is. And in fact, I got into my car and that's the song that was on, on the 70s station was, was Imagine. And I was listening to it, you know, no religion, no, no, no hell below us, uh, no heaven above us, just the sky and et cetera, et cetera. And I thought he was murdered, right? He was shot dead by a crazy person. Isn't that the, the, the clearest repudiation of the fact that the entirety of that song was based upon a rejection of the biblical teaching that man's heart is evil? Yeah, exactly. I, I mean, Wow. But hey, people keep trying because that's how you suppress the knowledge of God. That's got to hold it down. Got to hold it down. Here's the UN holding it down uh, and getting rid of the patriarchy in uh, in the process. I did uh, get one of these. How many of you have gotten one of these um, little notices recently? False information found in your post. Um, 
independent fact checkers, it's science feedback, blah, 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 blah. Say information in your post is partly false to stop the spread of false news. We've added a notice to your post. And it has something to do with masks. So if you, you know, uh, so wherever you are in the world, Spain, Australia, wherever, you have to wear your sign of submission. And if you're, if you are cursed to be able to read medical papers and know something about virology and know that this is one big fat stinking joke, um, and that a virus is going to virus, then you're in trouble and we will put notices on your posts and tell people you're a bad, bad person so that they don't see things like this. Now, this is fascinating. I want to see more about this. This is, it says Sweden, total COVID-19 deaths versus direct cause. Now, I have not been able to find yet, and I want to find, and I was one of my immediate responses. Um, so you can see the blue is total COVID-19 deaths, and then red is direct cause. I want to know how they broke those, that, those two matrices out. How, what is the consistent methodology? Is there, is, was there, for, for example, was there a standard that said this patient was not terminal from the comorbidity factors that they had um, and would have lived how long? One year, two year, five year? Because the vast majority of COVID deaths are with people with 2.6, 2.5, comorbidity factors. And so I want to know what the standard being used, because I'd love to see this being applied globally. But that issue aside, what you see with the blue are the total COVID deaths, and then the red are the total direct cause COVID deaths that COVID was, by this methodology, and that's what I'm wanting to find out about, that COVID was the primary cause of death versus something else. And and we're not even talking here about the funny stuff that we've heard about in regards to, well, it's not funny, um, but the absurd stuff that we've heard about regarding a motorcyclist that dies in a motorcycle accident. They test his dead body uh, and they find a COVID virus in there, which again, unless it manifests itself, maybe everybody has a COVID virus hiding in there someplace. Um, but not, we're not even talking about that. Um, we're, we're talking about um, a different thing. And you'll, you'll notice less than 1000 over the entire period of time from the beginning to the current day. Is, is what this graph is showing in Sweden. And maybe because Sweden did things differently, maybe that's why they have that information. Maybe because they weren't trying to pad numbers. Because in Sweden, because they did it the way they did it, you didn't have the monetary impetus to pad your numbers. So these numbers may be the most valuable for the whole world because everywhere else we're all going, oh, the more COVID deaths you got, the more money you get from the government because we all shut down. Well, Sweden didn't. So you don't have that impetus. But it's real obvious, isn't it? 
what what's going on here. And when you really start seeing the numbers, you start going, how many trillions of dollars representing the effort and work of people from all over the world, from Africa to Australia to South America to Russia to China to everywhere, has been wasted on a political reset. You start seeing the numbers, and the numbers go, wow, look at that. Look at that. So let's take that down, because that's my whole screen there. Just move slowly, huh? Okay, anyway. He's getting older. He's getting older, folks. You know, I mean, uh, his birthday's coming up, and it's just... it. You know, I, I remember back in the olden days when he was just fast as lightning, but now it just, you did, know. Did you hear about the the uh, the baseball fan at the park the other day? It got hit by a foul ball, and it, it's, it totally took out the cardboard head. <laughs> and they could not revive it. It was pronounced dead of COVID-19. COVID-19. That's right. That's right. Thank you. That's... I think the hesitation in getting that down was he was trying to remember the whole joke and make sure that he had, because you never want to tell one of those dad jokes and then forget the important part in the middle. Cause I've done that many times and it's, it's really bad. You don't still want to do that. So anyway, all right, folks, thanks for watching the dividing line, listening to the dividing line, do whatever you did uh, today. I hope it was useful to you. Lord willing, we will be back later in the week. We'll see you then. God bless.